You are listening to The LifeCast, a podcast where we discuss topics around faith, family, and fun. Alright guys, and welcome back to the podcast. I'm your host, Mark, and this is The LifeCast. Today is episode 5. And we are in part four of our series called In the Beginning. And so today we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter three, which is traditionally known as the fall. And um, the fall, the fall from what? What? The fall from grace, the fall from uh, the garden, um, that kind of a thought. And so um, got a lot going on in this passage. And so normally what I like to do is I like to start off with a personal story that sort of builds a bridge um, to the passage that we're going to, going to be reading. But this, we got a, we got a humdinger here. And so um, uh, what I want to do is I want to kind of just backtrack us through um, Genesis 1 and 2 and talk a little bit about the foundations that we have laid thus far. Uh, I want to talk about the status um, that they experience in the garden. And um, and then I'm just going to kind of work verse uh, a few verses by a few verses and make some comments along the way, and then um, try to land the plane with how all this is relevant for us today. And how, how does this even connect to perhaps uh, Jesus and his ministry and his work? And so, yeah, you guys ready to go? And so let's, let's get started. So Genesis 1, like we talked before, begins with this poem, this creation narrative that God is good and that he, um, he creates from a place of, um, of love. In the ancient world, um, human beings were created to be the slaves of the gods. But this God is different. This God doesn't create um, so that he could have slaves. He creates because he wants to have a family. Now, the Christian tradition is that God is uh, this Trinitarian relationship of Father, Son, and Spirit. And so you could say that God is a relationship. And what do relationships, what do healthy relationships always do? Well, they always reproduce. And so God in this relationship, he wants to share this love, and so he reproduces, he creates a place um, for his family to dwell. And so God creates the, the earth, he splits the, the dark and the light, he creates this place for us to be, and he creates humanity, and he creates humanity in his image. And the, and the writer tells us that he creates the male and female in his image. And so a part of being a part of being made in the image of God is understanding that we are both that there are male and that we are male and female that there's this um this mix of that and so that's uh that you got that going on it says that the human beings when he makes them that they are very good so he's well pleased and that he blesses them and he blesses them as a father would bless um, his children. And so every human being, every single person that you meet, is made in the image of God. And every human being that you meet carries 
the original blessing of the Father. And so that's something that we wanted to talk about in Genesis chapter 1 that was foundational to our understanding of the story. In Genesis chapter 2, we, we, we then observed a second creation narrative. And you could say Genesis 1 is the macro, well, Genesis 2 is the micro. It's from, from humanity's perspective. And that God forms the Adam, the Adam, which means dirt, and it also means humanity, that he creates Adam out of the dirt of, of the earth, and that he breathes the, ble- the breath of life into him. And so that the, you and I, are, we, we are this mixed bag, we are this paradox, we are crowned with glory, and yet from dirt we have come, and to dirt we shall return. And, and that we are this, this dirt flesh with this divine breath. And so sometimes emotionally we can be up and down. Sometimes our lives can can appear to be a mess. And that's just the reality of being a human being, that we are in this space, this unique space without within all of creation where we are we are mortal and yet we have been given the breath of the of the infinite. And and so um God in this Genesis two passage realizes that not only are we this divine breath and dirt flesh, but it's not good for us to be alone. And that in the garden where he had placed Adam, that um, there was no suitable, suit, suitable helper. And the word helper we discussed was this idea of this ezer or this protector, this person who stood shoulder to shoulder and so um, had his back. And, and so God creates Eve. And um, Adam sings the first love song in history that she is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And we made the connection of how even thousands and thousands of years later, we still resonate with that understanding that we we meet people and in some way they, they complete us and they complement us and that we um, and that it's it's about marriage, but it's bigger than marriage, that relationships are so vital to what it means to be a human being. And, and so God, um, he creates this, these people, his children. He gives them a, a, an, an identity and a purpose. He calls them to, to cultivate and take care of this garden that he's placed them in. And it says, and their status within this place is that they were naked, and yet they felt no shame, that warts and all, that they were okay with who they were. And that they were created for this relationship, relationship with God, relationship with one another, relationship, you could say, with their inner self, and relationship with this creation that they were called to take care of it. Which then leads us to um, a particular interesting detail that we're going to discuss. In chapter 2, verse 8, it says, Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, which we've discussed. And that there he put the man that he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. And in the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And so God places Adam in this garden, 
He, he calls him to take care of it, to cultivate it. And he places these two trees, which were that one the, known as the tree of, of life, and the second tree being the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, and he says to Adam, he says, don't eat that tree. Because when you do it, you will certainly die. Now, it raises a couple of questions like, why would God do this? My, my first observation about this is simply that life is about choices, isn't it? Like every day you and I have a choice. We can choose life or we can choose death. And we can, we can make wise choices and we can make foolish choices. And the temptation, I would argue, is that in life, the, the, the true way to leads, that leads to death is when we misjudge, um, when we make misjudgments about our circumstances and our situations. And, and so I would say that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is the ability to make judgments, good or bad, about the circumstances that we find ourselves in. And so they, they're tempted to eat from this tree. Where on the other hand, um, there is also simply the choice of life, that we can choose to live within the parameters, the framework that God has, um, has given us. And I simply say it like this. When you raise your kids, there are certain things is that, you, that you don't let them do. It's not that they're not going to be allowed to do it forever. It's just that the, there's a certain place and a certain time when that knowledge is given. And so like when Evan was a kid, I, you, you don't let your two-year-old play with the stove. You, you, it's not that they're not ever going to be allowed to play with the stove. It's just that you don't let a two-year-old do that. You need to, to wait until they're like 12, and then you begin to teach them this is how the stove works. This is the burners. This is how you set the temperature, and this is how you set the timer and all those types of things. And so I would, I would say that it wasn't that God was never going to teach them how to make the proper judgments of what is good and what is evil. He was just simply saying you can't have it all at once. Because when you do, you're going to make bad judgments, and those bad judgments are going to lead to death. You will certainly die when that happens. And so I would say that the two, the two, the two trees in the garden, they, they represent the choices that you and I have in life to make. It's sort of a story about growing up, isn't it? But also, I would say that there's a second dimension to looking at these two trees. And that second dimension is that love always requires a choice. And so those two trees, you could also say they represent whether or not Adam and Eve are going to choose to live within the framework or the, the rules of the relationship that God has established for them thus far in their existence. And, and so love is about a choice. You can't force people upon you. Uh, for love to truly exist, we have to have the, the, the option to say yes or to say no. And what's heartbreaking about love and what's heartbreaking about life is oftentimes we find ourselves making the choice to, to walk away, to say no to love, to say no to grace, 
to say no to the good things that someone has given us. And so this story, it reveals to us, um, God puts these two trees in the garden, one to represent the choices that you and, I, you and I have to make in life, and two to represent the love that he wants to have with us, which leads us then to the beginning of chapter three. That was quite the introduction. Chapter three begins this way. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now, just for a moment, the talking snake thing. You know, I feel like maybe we need to address that. If you don't believe in talking snakes, and you want to think of this as um, allegory or, or myth or whatever, that's fine. That's fine. And if you want to believe that before the fall of man, before that we were cut off from um, all the capacities that perhaps we had in our lives before sin entered into the picture, and that maybe there was this ability that we could communicate with animals in a way that you and I can't communicate with animals now, well, hey, that's fine too. However you want to read this story, the reality is is that it can be true whether it happened or not, because here's the deal about these stories. They happened, but they also happen, which leads us to verse 2. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat from the tree in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. Verse 4, You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And so there's a number of things going on in this passage, this part of the passage. Let me just kind of work through them. First off, the serpent gets them to question their reality. He, he plants the seed of doubt into their minds. And the two things that he gets them to begin to question is, one, God's character, and two, their identity. And so essentially said, did God really say that? He, he begins that plant of deceit, that, that seed of deceit. Did, did God really say that? You know, he's holding out on you, right? He doesn't want you, yeah, you know, that whole bit about him making you in his image, yeah, I've heard that one before, but here's the deal. He's holding out. He, he doesn't really want you to be like him. And, and so he, he gets them to question God's good nature and character, but he also then plants the, the seed of shame in their life by questioning their identity. You know, you're not who you think you are. You're not as, you're not as talented. You're not as worthy of all of this. You, you know, you don't even know the knowledge of good and evil. Like, you're not, you don't, you don't, you don't have it all together. You're not everything that you thought you were, is essentially what this 
serpent is planting in their mind. And what happens here is that he sows in this conversation the seeds of shame and the seeds of envy. And Eve takes a deep look at this. And, it's, and, and this fruit, this forbidden fruit, begins to appeal to her primal temptations, to the primal temptations of appetite, approval, and ambition. It says that she saw that the, that the tree was good for food. She saw that the fruit was pleasing to the eye. And she saw that it was desirable for gaining wisdom. Now, how many of us do we struggle with temptations that are centered around our, our appetites or, or try, trying to seek someone else's approval, pleasing to the eye? Hey, you, this fruit is pleasing to the eye. If it's pleasing to my eye, it's going to be pleasing to others as well. And ambition, like, I need to get ahead. I need to, I got to, I got to figure something out that other people don't know so I can get ahead in the game. And so she takes and she eats and she gives some to her husband and he eats as well. Side note, he should have protected her, shouldn't he? Like the two, the two together are, they're, they're called to stand shoulder to shoulder. They're called to protect one another's back. And yet in this moment, they don't. And then when they eat of this tree, it says their eyes were opened and they saw that they were naked. And so when their eyes were opened, they realized that they were naked and that they took fig leaves and they sewed them to cover up their nakedness, which they, they're now naked and they're ashamed, aren't they? They're ashamed of who they are. Their eyes have been opened to this. And they sew fig leaves. And you and I, we still sew fig leaves, don't we? We cover over our shame. We, we wear the facade. We put up the facade. We, we wear the mask. And uh, we want other people to think that we got it all together. And we've been sewing fig leaves ever since. It then goes on, it then continues and says, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? Which, by the way, can you hear it? That echo? That echo of Eden. Somebody, something calling, where are you? Ever get that sense that you're alone? Ever get that sense that you're off of the tracks? That you're off the path? God is still calling to all of us, where are you? God is still calling out to humanity, where are you? It says in verse 10 that, that Adam answers, he says, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and so I hid. And God said, who told you that you were naked? I, I didn't, I didn't tell, have, have you eaten from the tree 
that I commanded you not to eat from? See, here's the thing about shame. Shame can be isolating. Guilt is guilt is a good, sometimes a good thing, but shame can be isolating. Guilt is I did something wrong. Shame is there is something wrong with me. And what shame always does is it isolates us and it leads us to fear. And so what you have these two doing in their shame is hiding hiding themselves from one another by covering up themselves with fig leaves and then going and hiding from their God, from their Father, who apparently makes it a habit to hang out with them in the cool of the day. And so God says, who told you that you were naked? See, what has happened here is they've made a judgment about themselves. And God God wasn't ashamed or appalled by their nakedness. And yet they've made this false judgment that now they're unworthy, that now there is something wrong with them. And how often do we carry around this, this false shame that there's something wrong with us? And so God says, like, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit from the tree, and I ate it. And so instead of just owning up, instead of just confessing, if you will, hey, I messed up, Adam points the finger at Eve, and Adam points the finger at God. This is your fault. If you hadn't put this woman in my life, I would have never ate of that tree. See, the thing, the, the way that we, we deal with our guilt, the way that we deal with our shame, the way that we deal with our fear, is that we blame other people for it. Instead of simply taking responsibility, instead of simply owning up to the mistakes that we make, we blame others. And Eve does the same thing. It says in verse 13, then the Lord said, the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me. And I ate. Now, what's interesting about what Eve does here is she she halfway owns up. She says, "Well, you know, I got tricked. I I ate, and the serpent it deceived I it deceived me. I should have said no, but I didn't. And so the so it says." The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman. I always mess that up. And between you and her offspring. And he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. 
and with painful labor, labor you will give birth to a child. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam he then says, Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat that you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. From dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And so two thoughts about those, those passages, that section. Um, this is just simply the results of the choices that you and I make. Ever reap what you sow? And so for the woman, her curse is centered around relationship. That in, that in having children, the, the thing that should have brought her the most joy is actually going to be a painful experience. And you could, like I said before, you can read this simply on the surface and like that labor is painful. But let's be honest, raising children can be painful because you love them. And you care for them, and yet sometimes they make bad choices. Sometimes they go the wrong way. And so with painful labor, you will give birth to children, because giving birth doesn't simply stop in that moment. You're continually raising and giving birth new life to your children, and they can accept it, and they can choose to walk away from it. It's back. Now that relationship has been fractured. And that for Eve, she will desire um, for this relationship to be whole. But her husband is going to take advantage of that. He's going to rule over her. He's going to manipulate her. Now, here's the thing about this. The reality is is that we all have masculine and feminine um, traits in our lives. And that we're relational. And so um, I know plenty of men who desire relationship way more than, than work. And I know some women who desire work um, way more than they desire relationship, which actually leads us then to Adam's curse. To Adam, he gives this, um, this curse that centers around his work and that you're going to work your tail off to try to make ends meet, but at the end of the day, it's not going to bring you true fulfillment significance. And that you're going to work, and then one day you will die. And so there is this, this curse, the, the reality of the choices that you and I make, that we're going to try and define our, our significance and our identity and our fulfillment in, what, in the relationships that we have and the work that we do. And yet, we're never going to find truly what we need because what we need was in the garden. What we need is relationship with God. It then says, Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take 
also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. And so the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. And after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden of Eden cherubim, which are angels, and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. And so you have this story of um, simply the realities of the choices that we make and the repercussions from those choices. What I find interesting about this is that in this choice, Adam and Eve, they move from a place of innocence to a place of guilt. They, move, they make this choice because they feel this, this, this shame that they're not all who they thought that they were. A false shame. And I would say that oftentimes the bad choices that we make in life is because there is a false shame that we believe. But then once we make a bad choice, there's a true shame. Their eyes are open and they're naked, and so they cover themselves. And for most of us, we struggle with guilt. We struggle, struggle with shame. We struggle with fear. And so we find ourselves hiding. We find ourselves covering ourselves with fig leaves. And oftentimes the way that we, we cope and we deal with this is then we just simply blame other people for it. It was our parents' fault, or it was the circumstances, or if I made more money. And you could go on and on with the lists that we use to blame other people. But the reality is, is that this is a universal struggle. It's the struggle of all people. It was their struggle, and it's our struggle. Which leads us to a question like, is there, is there hope? And is there an answer? Within the Christian tradition, there is hope. And that hope is actually found in this passage. There's an interesting detail that, the, that God gives the serpent. Now, viewed through the Christian lens, the serpent ultimately um, is revealed to be Satan, or the devil, Hasatan, the, the accuser. And so, through the Christian lens, this, this serpent is this character, the enemy of God and the enemy of humanity. But in this passage, it says that I'm going to, God says that, that the woman will have an offspring, and he will crush your head as you try to strike his heel. And the Christian belief is that this, this offspring that will crush the serpent's head is Jesus. Now just stay with me for a second on this. Jesus comes and, and he lives his life, and f from the Christian perspective, he is God incarnate. He is, um, he is the true representation of what God is like. And that he lives this life of service. He lives this life of love and of grace. He bringing healings and teaching and, and essentially pointing people to uh, a new humanity and what it looks like to live in relationship with God. But eventually he's betrayed, eventually he's accused of um, blasphemy, and eventually he's sentenced to death to die on a cross. 
What's interesting about this death on the cross is that I believe Jesus deals with the shame, guilt, fear problem that we all struggle with. He deals with the blaming. See, on the cross, the shameless one who has no need to to cover over the things that he has done, he hangs there naked, ashamed, body beaten, flesh torn, and he takes on our shame. On the cross, the one who has committed no sin, the one who is innocent, is counted as guilty. He who knew no sin becomes sin, and he takes our guilt upon him. On the cross, the one who had never experienced fear cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And on the cross, the one who has the right to blame everyone else for the circumstance that he is in prays a prayer, My Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. And as he takes on our shame, as he takes on our guilt, as he takes on our fear, as he chooses not to blame, it ultimately kills him. Because that's what it does. The shame, the guilt, the fear in your life, you can't carry it, and it ultimately kills you. But three days later, the story goes that God raises him from the dead, and he conquers death crushing the serpent's head. And he calls us to live free. Free from shame. Free from guilt. Free from fear. Free from blaming other people. The first people that heard this story called it gospel, which means good news. And so the good news for you, the good news for me, the good news for the world is that we can be free, that we don't have to live like this anymore. And so that's chapter three. Blessings to you guys. Bye. Thank you again for listening to the live cast. If you find this podcast helpful, um, I'd like to ask you to do two things. One, share it on your social media. And two, um, please subscribe to iTunes or SoundCloud and leave us a review and a rating. It helps get the word out. And so thank you guys again for listening. And we'll catch you next week. Blessings. Bye.